Welcome to The Rock's podcast. The Book of Romans has been called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Alrighty, it's time to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. I will refresh your memories, Romans chapter 2. We pick up in the middle of the chapter, verse 17, so we look forward to that. And uh, let me just give you a heads up. It's a good day for communion after the passage, after we reflect and uh, read through that paragraph Uh, you will be delighted that it's communion (laughs) Sunday. (laughs) Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you for the convicting power of your word. It just cuts like a knife. You, You say there in the scriptures of the word of God that it's sharp like a sword, a scalpel that can get in there and do the work that we need done. Healing work. Uh, work that makes us more like Christ, work that saves us from being foolish and living a life of regret. So thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. Apply it, we pray. We yield our will to your good will. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So these opening chapters of Romans, chapters 1 through 3, really uh, have a job to do to convince the whole world of their need for Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross uh, on their behalf. And it's a real challenge because uh, in a fallen world, our hearts are are estranged and a little bit hostile uh, to the message from heaven. And the gospel, starting out here in Romans chapter 1, was called the good news of God. That's what gospel means, that we can be saved. And so, But if you don't feel that you need to be saved, you're really not interested in the good news of God because the good news of God is that you can be saved. Well, saved from what, right? And so uh, somebody on the front row understood what I was saying there, so... So the Holy Spirit, through Paul, because the Holy Spirit is the true author of all scripture, not any man, but he's using Paul to begin with the bad news for these opening three chapters, for bad news for all humanity, no matter who you are and how good you think you may be, in order to help everybody to see and to sense and to feel their desperate need. And there's a lot of pride and a lot of resistance to this very good message, but in order for it to be good, you've got to hear the bad news. And the bad news really is what makes the good news good. Let me give you, let me give you an example of that. A wife purchases renter's insurance and she tells hubby, who's sitting on the couch, 
hey, um, you know, he lifts his eyes from the phone and uh, she says, uh, hey, I purchased renter's insurance today. And he says, well, how much was it? And, you know, do you think we really need it? And okay, fine, whatever. And he goes back to texting. Well, a couple months later, imagine with me that he's at work and he gets a call from the police. The police say, hey, your home uh, security system went off and we went out to check it out. And unfortunately, your garage doors busted wide open and there's nothing in it. Did you have a lot in your garage? Because it's pretty much empty. And he says, all my tools. And the cop says, gone. And then he says, well, (laughs) my new expensive camping gear, gone. My motorcycle, yeah. (laughs) I I knew I would get it soon. (laughs) He says, gone. And then he picks up the phone and he calls his wife, honey pie sugar muffin, my darling. Tell me the good news that you did, in fact, purchase renter's insurance. And tell me all about that policy. I want to know everything about that policy. You did get the best policy, didn't you? Oh, he's all ears now. Oh, it's really good news when she says, yes, dear, I got the renter's insurance. And yes, dear, your motorcycle has been covered. That's good news, right? That's quite a difference from a couple months ago when he's on the couch. You say, see, you have to, the point of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is to help you feel the burn. you got to feel the burn before you open your heart to the message. As hard as that might be, that we've all sinned, we knew better, and we knew there was a God by just looking around us. We have a God-given conscience that has told us plain and simple that there is a God. And though, though we knew these things, and we know right from wrong, we choose to do the wrong thing, and we deserve the punishment and the wrath of God, um, but we're not convinced totally of that, Right? So the tall order that the Holy Spirit has, but the Holy Spirit is up to it, is to convince us. So here we go. We're getting ready to dive back in. The apostle has had a tough audience, and he divides the world uh, into three types of sinners. And we've taken a look at chapter one. He goes after, excuse me, flagrant, godless types of sinners who throw all caution to the wind and say, hey, everybody, I'm bad to the bone. Um, Get over it. Uh, We're going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to break all the rules, and I don't care. And so uh, the message to that person was, you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You know better through creation and through your conscience, and you are uh, storing up Judgment and wrath on the day Christ will appear. And then secondly, he talks about uh, those who are morally inclined, but they are atheists. They want nothing to do with God. They are not religious, but they take pride in their high moral standards. They are model citizens. They are charitable. They are decent, hardworking, and even loving people. They just don't want anything to do with God or his son, 
or the cross. And so the answer to them was, you've got to stop comparing yourself among other sinners and thinking you're okay because you're better than most. Uh, He's going to say to them, and he has said to them, that uh, you condemn bad behavior in others. You justify yourself. I'm not like that, uh, but I condemn those who are more sinful like that but you're condemning them, but you do the same kinds of things. So how will you escape the judgment of God yourself? So that's done. So we've done with the flagrant, godless sinner, and now the morally inclined sinner who wants nothing to do with God, but is a really decent kind of guy. And now we're left with where we pick up today, the religious person, the toughest task of all the religious person who does not have a relationship with Christ and doesn't want the gospel because they say, I don't need the gospel. I'm religious. I'm doing this. And I, I go to church and I, I, I have a Bible and I know the Bible better than most people. And I pray every day the same prayers over and over again, but they do pray. So, He has to convince religious people that your religion can't save you. That you can have the outer without the inner, but all that makes you is not saved, but a hypocrite. So that's what we're going to talk about now. He has to convince religious people without faith in Christ that they need to be born again. And he's going to do that by exposing the hypocrisy of religion without relationship. But here we go. Our text, verse 17. Now you, religious person, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and you approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the Bible, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, that word means, a new convert, because you have in the Bible the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, then you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I'll explain that. Verse 23, you who brag about the Bible, the scriptures, that's what that word means. Do you dishonor God by breaking his word, his commands? Well, as it's written in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 5, God's name is insulted among non-Jewish people because of you and your failure to live up to the claim that you make being religious and representing God when it's all about a show and not about an inner reality. So we'll leave that up there as we get situated. It does divide in half, and that's how we'll take it. But let's just walk through. Man, uh, it is such an ironic thing that the hardest person to reach with the gospel is somebody who's surrounded Uh, with the name of God, the scriptures that can save, 
gathering together in his name. Now, now he's going after first century Jews, but we can also think of it as believers, Christians and Jews at that time. The Jews had enough knowledge in the scriptures to actually be saved and, and to have a right relationship. Their father, Abraham, the first Jew, believed God, had faith in God, and that's what saved. And all the religious activities that you could look at around Abraham's life came as a result of the faith, the simple faith that put him right with God. Then everything else was a sign pointing to an inward reality. But what happens is is that we get all transfixed and obsessed on the outward trappings of the religion without having the, the inner transformation, the connection, the personal faith that saves. And then we think because we're doing all this stuff that we're okay. And God says, it be- the stuff better be fueled by a personal faith and a moral transformation within a new birth, a new life. Or all the religion <laughs> is, yes, it's trappings because it traps you. And so uh, we're, we're, this is the whole point here. Like millions this morning who are observing religious traditions, they're in ornate religious buildings, they're reciting religious prayers, they're singing religious songs, and they are not born again, and they are not going to heaven because Jesus told a very religious guy who was 24-7 about religion, he says, you've got to be born again. You've got to do nothing you're doing outwardly. None of your good deeds. None of your service to God. None of the temple duties, you Pharisee. He says, you've got to start all over again. And, and it's tough because religious people don't get it. He says, what, are you, what, do you want me to climb back into the womb? And Jesus says, you're a leader. How can you not understand the simple metaphors that I'm giving to you? Because religion, man, it'll blind you. It will blind you. And he says, you're missing out on everything because you're in love with the outward. And I'll tell you what. It's easier to do than to be. God wants us to be alive. And from that life comes actions And then those actions have meaning because something happened on the inside, but for millions of people, and not just Catholics or Anglicans or Episcopalians or Greek Orthodox, as we like to see higher church as religious, but Protestant churches, the Baptists and the Methodists and the non-denoms and the Calvary chapels. There's a ton of people who will justify themselves Pat themselves on the back because they'll, they'll take out a list. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And all of those things in the list here, there's seven of them. They're all good and right. But they have to be coming from a real transformative new birth that comes into us by the power of the Holy Spirit or they're all, they're not... Uh, Blessings, they're uh, more of a curse because they make you think you're going to be in heaven, but you won't be unless you're born again. And that's the whole point here. 
So it divides quite nicely as seven claims a believer could make, seven aspects. It's really one claim. I know the Lord. And with seven implications, seven things you could say are listed there from verses 17 through 20. And then he says, okay, so you got those seven claims, you believer, old believer. Uh, Now let me ask you five rhetorical questions. Now he's not talking about a born-again person who falls short and, and struggles with being a hypocrite. That happens all the time in our marriages. We, we, we get all uh, bent out of shape about a spouse, and, but we're doing the same thing. We're giving our spouse the problem. We're all got some measure of hypocrisy in our lives, always because we fall short of the ideal. He's not talking to us, though we will be convicted hugely by this chapter. He is talking to the person who is 100% faking it. The whole thing's a show. There's nothing inside but emptiness, but it's a really good faker. And the word hypocrite means actor or mask. And so he's going after that person. Why? Because God's a big meanie? No, because God has a heart of love and wants to save the person from the trap that's set before them. No, 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 Nicodemus. Religion is not your friend if you don't have a relationship with God and you're born again from within. So that's what he's going after now. Let's take a look at the seven claims, or I should call them note takers, the seven implications of saying you know the Lord. And so we'll go ahead and put them up there now. Let's walk through them. He says, okay, you who say you know the Lord, uh, there's seven implications, and they're all good implications. Number one, you call yourself a Jew, you got the label. Already, I'm convicted. Uh, already, because you call yourself a Jew, you call yourself a Christian. You've taken the name, you've, you've put it on your forehead, you put it on your shirt, you put it on your car, you, put, you hang it all over your house. You've told the whole world, most of us, not everybody, but you call yourself a Christian, a Jew, a believer, right? Now, Jew, in sh- for short, it was, uh, they got it from one of their ancestors, Judah, right? And, the, and Judah was given the so- southern part of Israel to live his descendants. And it, it was like a little state there when Jerusalem was there. And around Esther's time, about mm, 400 years uh, earlier than this writing, uh, they started calling themselves Jews, just for short. And it means praise to God. So he says, you call yourself praise to God. But are you? Do you? And then worse for me, you call yourself a Christian. <laughs> He's saying that. You call yourself a Christian and he doesn't mean it in a threatening way or in a... <laughs> You know, he means it as okay. You call yourself a Christian. I'm going to ask you some tough questions later in just a second. But you call yourself a Christian. Christians got started calling themselves Christians after the Romans were insulting them, calling them Christ followers. The Latin suffix there, follower or belonging or servant person. You're a Christ person. 
You call yourself a Christ person. So what you're saying is that I am an example of a Christ person. Who, um, who This is what Christ people view on their computers when nobody's around. This is what a Christ man looks at. This is what a Christ man, uh, how he treats his spouse, his wife. These are how Christ followers treat their enemies. They're supposed to love them. This is how a Christ person responds under pressure or when they're tempted to sin. You get the picture. He says, okay, you got the label. He's going to ask him, do you got the life? And by the way, and I've said this before, the true meaning of the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, has nothing to do with speaking it out and using it in vain. Zero. That's a misunderstanding. It means to take the name Jew on themselves, believer, and then misrepresent him to not belong to him at all. That's taking his name implying that you're, you're going to point him to God. You're going to do all the things in this paragraph, but you're not. It's false advertising. That's what the third commandment's about. Yes, it will include misusing it verbally, but he's not talking about a slip of saying, oh my gosh. He's talking about you saying, look at me, I'm a Christian, and then having unforgiveness in your heart or envy, or jealousy, or lust. That's what he's talking about. And we're only on number one. <laughs> we need communion. Don't, don't rush the tables. Don't rush the tables. Uh, okay, I think you get it. Number two, you rely on the law. Now, the law is what the Jews called the Bible. And in fact, a Jew today calls the Bible, our Bible, the Bible. They call their Old Testament the Bible. The law stood for the first five books that Moses wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, but it came to mean the entire Old Testament. So you can substitute always the Bible there. He says, you're confident that by having it, having it around you, knowing it, memorizing it, that it's a shield against disaster. Not true. <laughs> Jesus tells the, the religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes, who knew the Bible 10 times better than any Protestant pastor, that you think because you, you know the scriptures, you have eternal life. He says, wrong. The scriptures are there to point you to me and you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, it's okay once you come to him to say you'd be pretty happy that you rely on the Bible. Yes, that's a good thing. Number two is a good thing. Except if you don't have Christ and you're not born again. You know, I was at a yard sale. And I saw this beautiful old Bible, and it had somebody's old handwriting in it from 1925. And I'm like, oh, man, how much do you want for this? Oh, that old thing? Oh, that never got any use in our home. You can have it. You see, you can have it, which I have it. It's in my office. It means something to me because the Christ and the God of that book means something to me. 
How many people have perished having Bibles? And that's just, he's going to make that point. You think you have the Bible. I've got the Bible. I know the Bible. I'm okay. Are you? Number three. He says, you brag or you take delight about your, and catch this, about your relationship to God. Not with God. It's to God. In other words, in a positive sense, he's, there's, he's saying, you're glad the fact that you're chosen. I mean, God tells him over and over every other page in the Old Testament, you're chosen, you're chosen, you're chosen. You didn't come looking for me. I just came looking for you, not because of anything good you did. I just chose you and Christians have the same understanding and that we are, we brag. The word isn't brag as in English. It's more take delight in this thing that, wow, I am so highly favored. Now, in the negative sense, <clears throat> they started to say, well, I, we have a monopoly on him and the truth. And, our, and one writer put it this way. Our special relationship with God is not to make us feel better or superior, but to make us feel obligated to bring others into right relationship with God as we have. So instead of it being a blessing to say, hey, look at the favor God has given me, they turned it into we're superior, God likes us better, and look at all those losers out there who don't have that kind of grace and aren't living up to biblical morals. Well, they can't live up to biblical morals if they don't know the God of the Bible, amen? And so, yeah, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. <laughs> That's too bad. And then number four, he says, supposedly you know God's will. Because why? They have the scriptures. So we know what God's plan for our lives is. But this is the key to life and the fatal flaw of their reasoning. Let me show you the scariest uh, scripture in the New Testament for me. Matthew chapter 7. He says, you, you supposedly know God's will. Well, what is God's will? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 <laughs> will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the ones who do the will of my Father. Whoa, there it is. You claim to know the will of God. Okay, what is the will of God? Well, many will say to me on that day, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do this? But I'm going to tell them, I didn't know you. I didn't connect with you. And you're justifying yourself by saying uh, you had, and it sounds to me, which scares me, a very powerful ministry. Or so it sounds. But it would never occur to a truly born-again Christian to justify himself before God by what he does or did, but for what was done for him on his behalf. Do you see the flawed thinking there? It's all about stuff. I went through life saying, well, look, I prayed and something big happened and I had this big ministry or I had Bibles or I gave more than anybody else in the church. I was such a straight arrow, and I did my taxes right. You could pull the list out, but it's all stuff you took pride in doing without knowing him. And all of that stuff would have been great. Had the inner 
been in sync with the outer or giving expression to the outer. Right? That's some scary stuff. That's a, that's a better ministry than I can, can claim to have, and they're not going to heaven. Why? Because they didn't do the will of God. First, the will of God. I've got a second scripture here. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent, that we know Christ. What must we do to do the work God requires? John chapter 7. They're chasing Jesus down. He says, here's the work God requires. Believe the one he sent. Here I am. Believe in me. And then from that faith and new birth, all the other stuff flows and has meaning and is good and right and proper. And you should do most of those things. There just don't mean a thing without Christ within. And there are people here today and who hear the sound of my voice on podcasts who don't have the Christ within, but they're living stellar Christian lives without the Christ part. It's an easy fix, but we're not there yet. We can go back to the the list there. 17 through. Okay, number four, right? Uh, You know God's will, yeah. Number five was, you approve what's superior. Well, of course you, you approve what's superior because you have the knowledge of the scriptures and his will, supposedly, and so you can't get much higher standards than God's ideals for life, and so you're always walking around. You know the ideal attitude. You know how to get out of a problem. You have the smartest wisdom in the world. You approve the excellent superior things in life. You stand for moral character, discipline, and sacrifice, and all of that. You stand up for truth, justice, and the American way. I just (laughs) threw, threw that in there, but here's the deal. Here's what it means in short. You loudly applaud what's best and right while you secretly live what's inferior and wrong. Question mark. He's not accusing them yet. He's setting them up for a frontal assault. (laughs) All right, number six, you are well instructed with the word of God. You're just not well behaved. Uh, And then number seven, verse 19 now, uh, you're convinced that as a member of God's chosen people, you're a capable, competent teacher, Right, So uh, there are four ways that that these are all true and right and obligate every born-again Christian in the room, all four of them. A guide for the blind, a light to those in the dark, an an instructor of the foolish. uh, You see somebody living in a foolish way, you're able to, in love, in humility, having taken the, all, uh, the, your own chunk of wood out of your own eye, you're able to help other people who are stuck in some kind of foolish thing. You're, that's what God wants you to do. A teacher of infants means that if a new convert asked you, hey, I just got saved last week, now what? What do I do? You, because... Um, 
you know the Lord, you've got the Bible, so you say, you would tell them what to do. Well, you got to read your Bible every day, right? Isn't that what, listen, you would tell them to do the things that you yourself are not doing. That's the problem. Oh, you need to read your Bible every day. I get so convicted just talking to people. You gotta read your Bible every day. You've got to abstain from sin and bad attitudes. Make sure you don't harden your heart. And make sure you hang around with all the right people. And watch out for friends that 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 might be good friends, but can pull you down a little bit. Watch out for that. That's what I would tell somebody. That's what you would tell somebody. And now he's just getting ready to come around and smack you upside the head and me because we're, everybody's tracking. All the religious Jews are going, check, 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 check. Yes, indeed, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. They have no idea what's waiting for them right around the corner. And so, yes, indeed. They're confident. They imagine themselves to be Uh, doing all these things, rescuing people, pointing them out of darkness into light, rescuing them, and they're about to find out that they themselves need rescuing. First get in a lifeboat, then you can help others. But if you're still drowning, you see, you're no help at all. So let's go to the last half. Uh, these were the seven claims, and now he's got five rhetorical questions. We can put the next. There we go. Five rhetorical questions, which are, he already knows that he's gunning for people who are not regenerated, we say, not born again, that it's all outward. So he's implying with the rhetorical question, failure, an answer that does not measure up, because they're lacking the gospel. So calling all religious folks, you must be born again. Let's look at the five rhetorical questions that are going to test their claims. You know, back in the day, you had a piece of gold, and you know, what did you do to to make sure, what did they do to make sure it was really gold? What did they do? They bit it, right? And what happened? They had to go to the dentist. We have a dentist in the back laughing right now. Uh, and did you know why? Uh, it was supposed to make a dent. I didn't know that because soft, it's soft, right? So, yeah. Anyway, I don't recommend it. And here's a disclaimer. We're not paying for your dentist work. <laughs> so here's the bite. Here come five bites just to make sure. And they're painful as a bite, too. So number one, he's basically saying... Great, you've got the scriptures, you know the will, you call yourself a believer, you got, you got all seven of these things. So, you, and you teach others, do you teach yourself? And so the bottom line test to see if you're in trouble, that it's all a show and that you're actually still in your sins, even though you're quite uh, the stand-up kind of guy, religiously speaking, uh, is... Do you practice what you preach? That's basically the idea. I mean, do you live the way, do you walk the talk or not, right? Uh, One writer said this to cheer us up a little bit. Nobody perfectly lives up even to their own well-loved, well-intentioned ideals. 
But a large disparity between our words and our lives often means there's a large disparity between who we claim to be and who we actually are. And so your first clue that there's a problem is there's a big difference between what you're claiming, what you're saying, uh, and how you're living. So number two, he says, do you preach against stealing, but do you steal? Now, this is interesting. Commentators said uh, most religious Jews would be able to say no. So he's saying, this is a gateway sample question and indictment that allows the Jew to get the point and fill in the blank accordingly. Okay, so you don't, you preach against stealing and you don't steal. Good for you. Fill in the blank. Uh, do you lie? Do you preach against lying? But you're dishonest in some ways. Do you preach against gossiping and you're all uh, talk? Do you preach against, uh, do you preach forgiveness? Oh, you've got to forgive people and yet you hold grudges. Do you preach against talking ill of people and yet you slander people all the time? So it's a gateway kind of issue that you can make your own, you know, if you really wanted to. <laughs> Next questions are mean to sting and turn up the heat. Do you say, question number three, verse 22, do you say that adultery is wrong, but you commit adultery? And Jesus already knew the answer to that. Jesus said, oh, they're going to say, no, we don't. And then Jesus says, do you lust after a woman in your heart, sir? then you have committed adultery. You have a problem with pornography? You're an adulterer. If you... Do I need to go through that? I'm going to stop right there. Finish my sentence for me. Okay. If you are committing those kinds of sins, that is, for all intents and purposes... Uh, it is considered by God akin to adultery. And so uh, Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. He says, you know, you close your, uh, you, you roll your eyes, you condemn everybody else, and then you sneak your peaks. Come on. That, that is just not right. So he says, uh, one writer said this, religious people without Christ, are very good at expressing moral outrage but lack the power to put their own passions in check. Let me give you perhaps the greatest all-time example of this and hypocrisy at its finest. Modern-day Hollywood. What's going on today? I don't know if you follow the news. If you don't, you won't fully understand what I'm saying or how fantastic this example is. But <laughs> decades of glorifying gratuitous sex, Hollywood has scripted it, authored it, directed it, um, produced it, starred in it, glorified it, and profited crazy from it for years and years and years. And now there's a moral outcry and outrage 
about reaping the consequences of what they taught the entire world to do and how to live. And now, on a cover of a magazine, to see seven actresses protesting with great moral outrage the consequences of things that they have profited and taught us and go back into their private lives and live. And at the same time, now come out and, for lack of a better word, crucify those who cross the bounds and are immoral. Well, somebody said, do you preach moral responsibility, but then profit and live from being morally irresponsible? That's the idea there. Now, the next one is... Hard to understand for us contemporaries. You who hate and detest idol worship, uh, do you rob temples? Now, here's the key. Uh, The Jews hated idolatry. So there's no problem understanding that. But they lived under the Romans, and so there were shrines allowed everywhere. And so they are prided themselves. We, We serve the living God. We don't bow down to rocks or idols, but here's what they did do. Now, rob temples is sort of a, rob is not quite the right word. It's more like pilfer, pilfer or plunder. And here's what they would do. They would allow, they would condemn the practice of idolatry as long, that they, and they tolerated as long as they could profit from it financially. So here's what they would do. They'd set up a corner of their own properties and say, if you want to put Elephant Man with eight trunks there so that people can come and the incense and all of that for exorbitant amounts of money. So it would pay 10 times what a renter would pay. And they were making, they were robbing the temples while they were condoning uh, the idolatry. But with their lips, they'd walk away after taking all the coins in, saying a bunch of loser, pagan, idol-worshipping heathens. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. Oh, ouch. We do the same kinds of things, and we do the same kinds of things. We'll tolerate it if there's money involved. Uh, for us sometimes that's a problem so we're coming down to close now Um, and he's going to now (laughs) kind of move in close in for the kill which for God is the win is the live this is where you say dear God what have I done and it's so easy to fix so easy to fix but here's what here's the motivator for the Jew He's going to say, you're not just empty and frustrated and alone and powerless. You have no joy or peace. You don't have it on the inside. You're frustrated. You're empty. You're lonely. You don't have power over your own passions, right? You're forfeiting the grace that could be yours. Yes. Feel that. Wish you could change that because you can. But on top of all that, you are the cause for people stumbling and missing eternal life because they've associated your hypocrisy with the living God and therefore it brings 
derision, mockery, and insults. That's what it means to blaspheme, is to insult, uh, sacredly speaking. So, as it is written in Isaiah 52, 5, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. It just means regular guys who aren't Jews because of you. Here's what he's talking about. Back in Isaiah's day, some 700 years earlier, the Assyrians came in, leveled the place. And so the question here, the fifth and final question was, you brag about how the Bible is right and true, but by not living it, it's not just your loss, but the hypocrisy dishonors his name. That's the fifth thing. And he says, and let me show you the quote. So the quote was about the Assyrians who came in, and here's what they did. They looked at the wall. The city wall was in shambles because they destroyed it. And the temple that Solomon built that was one of the seven wonders of the world, it was in a pile of rubble. And their houses were on fire, and they were all in chains. And the Assyrians were looking at the temple and listening to the Jews and seeing the inscriptions, and they're singing the song as they're moving them out, something like, you know, their God is greater, their God is stronger, (laughs) their God is higher than any other. What a joke. What a joke. Hypocrisy will always bring derision. And mockery. I've got a little list here. I googled biggest hypocritical things found. A driving school instructor got a DUI, right? I mean, it's funny but sad. And then there's a fire station that went up in flames because it didn't install a smoke detector. And then, you know, I just imagine this way. You know, you, you, you go in and say, hey, I need a fitness, uh, fitness uh, instructor. And, uh, you know, you meet up with the fitness guy and he walks in with a box of donuts and he's 50 pounds overweight, right? So it's a joke. It's a joke. The crooked cop. It's a joke. The pastor who's a pervert. Or the priest. It's a joke. And he says, all, God speaking first person in Isaiah, by the way. God says, all day long. I have to hear people insulting me because of you. Now, if that didn't smack the Jew right upside of the head, nothing else will. So, yes, I've got this frustrating, empty, duty, sacrifice with no joy, no no benefits to me personally. A lot of work. And I've got the charge that I am preventing others from knowing God and causing God's name to be slandered, what to do. And here it is. It's so easy. Stop doing it. (laughs) Just stop and say, God, I'm sorry. Come into my heart. I want the real deal. Get on the knees. You don't even have to get on the knees. It's a change of heart. The thief on the cross went from mocking to looking around and going, whoops, uh, this is bad, you know, and I'm on the wrong side of right. So all he said was, hey, 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 stop talking like that. He's innocent. We deserve this. Hey, Lord, 
Jesus, remember, when you come into this kingdom that you've been talking about, remember me. And Jesus says, today, this day, you are going to be with me in paradise forever. Just for what? He didn't kneel. He didn't get right. He didn't get baptized. He didn't have to do anything. He just had to believe. And everything changed. So we're going to do that. We're going to believe. We're going to repent of our sins. The ones that are on our account today because, and even though we know him, it's weakened our lives and kind of robbed us of some joy. And if you're sitting here and there's no Christ in you, it's all around you. It's so simple. Lord, forgive me for this terrible thing. Come into my heart. All right, so the, we're going to pray and the ushers are going to serve us communion. Let's do that. Father God, and we now look to you. We ask your blessing during our time of reflection and communion that, Lord, we get rid of the religion and focus on the relationship with you. Uh, help us during this time to think of the things, the ways that we are being disingenuous and help us, God, because our hearts are deceitful. They lie to us all the time, even in church. <laughs> they're, they're, they're starting to tell us, oh, don't, don't panic, don't worry, you know, you're okay, you're okay. Well, are we? Are we? Let us really find out, God, by telling us, reveal the truth to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the whole deal about communion is, is that we are always going astray and we are always falling short, but there's something that is steady, unmovable, unchangeable, and can never be lost. Once it's applied to your account, it's the goodness of Christ. His perfection, he's not hypocritical at all. And he gives you that perfection. The way we, we remember that is too, once in a while, once a month in our case, to remember what he called the Lord's Supper, what the Bible calls, and we remember it by his broken body and his poured out blood on our behalf that makes us clean and right. So you're going to be served both at one time. You just take the cup out of the other cup and you'll see the little wafer there. Uh, but if you're a born-again believer, you're free to take this with us. If you are visiting from another church, but you're born again, awesome. And if you're sitting there saying, no, dude, I'm the one with the religion and no relationship and I want to get right, oh, say the prayer. God, I'm sorry. Come into my life. I repent. Fill me with your spirit. Done. And then you're welcome because it'll make sense to you. You see, a million times a million people will take this today and it will mean nothing. Because you don't know Christ. So know Christ. Give him your heart. And then it means something to you. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.